0: from John 2, verse 23 through 3-2. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher and who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. I get to see like twice as much of all of your faces as I did last week. This is kind of nice except Randy. Where's Randy? Mask back on. That was rude. I'm sorry, Randy. (laughs) Uh, I know that I can joke with Randy that way, because I'll probably get the same here in a little bit. Uh, This morning, we are continuing our series on the Gospel of John, and, uh, you know, sometimes the breaks in chapters really bug me. When I'm reading the Bible, uh, you know, I've, I've... Taken, taken it upon myself sometimes to find Bibles that don't have like chapter headings or don't have chapters or verses. Um, I was telling everyone out at men's retreat this last week that I, I spent a year reading through a book that I don't like the title of, uh, but it is a compilation of the New Testament that is arranged differently. They take out all the chapters and verses, all the headings, and they arrange them like in volumes. So you get the volume that is the uh, the the canon of John, essentially, all of John's writings. Um, and the benefit of that is that you, you find yourself reading things differently. You break them up a little bit different. The, the book's title is The Christian Scriptures, and the reason I don't like that title is because the Old Testament are Christian scriptures too. Um, all of that to say, the benefit of reading it the way that I've been reading it is that you kind of forget how we traditionally break these up. And there's this statement that was just read, David shared it with us, Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him what was in man. He, he knew what was in man. And over the course of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus have these conversations where someone asks him a question and he doesn't answer the question they asked. He goes somewhere completely different. And sometimes that's frustrating to us. We're like, Jesus, are you avoiding? Are you dodging here? And we're kind of used to that in our world, right? Like we watch a politician answer a question, and it's, how, long, how in the world did they get to this answer from that question? And so sometimes we see what Jesus is doing, and we're like, is he, is he being political here or something? Is he trying to avoid answering difficult questions? And the truth is, most of the time, the question that is asked is kind of benign, it's something that like Jesus could very easily answer because he's Jesus. But these interactions with people who ask Jesus questions comes after this statement. Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him what was in man. He already knew. That's, that statement there has changed the way that I read these interactions between Jesus and people. When Jesus encounters a person, he knows whether or not the question they're asking is the question they mean. So Nicodemus, who is this teacher of the law, a man well-educated, we, we don't know his exact position in Israel, but Jesus essentially says, Are you the, you're, you're the teacher of all Israel, right? He's, he's a high and elevated individual. He's very important that he's named in the Gospel of John is a big deal. People don't always get names in John's Gospel. The disciple whom Jesus loved doesn't get a name. It's, it's very interesting. He has this interaction where Nicodemus comes to him by night, maybe to be avoid, uh, to avoid being seen, maybe because his daytime workload is so heavy that going to ask Jesus a question is a difficult thing. We don't know exactly why he comes by night. I, I think maybe it's because Uh, you know, this is is the most convenient time for him to come and talk to Jesus. It definitely plays into the theme of dark and light in the Gospel of John. And I think there's a benefit to that. Uh, Maybe the reason that John chooses to tell this particular interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus is because it happens at night. And Jesus concludes most of the conversation with language about light. But what I find interesting about it is that Jesus answers Nicodemus's question. He doesn't skirt it. He doesn't go around it. He doesn't uh, change the subject. It it doesn't seem as though he's distrustful of the question that Nicodemus asks. And I want to kind of look at that. So when we read this particular story... We're always in a rush to get to John 3.16, and there's good reasons. Uh, I was telling Michael on our way back from men's retreat that Jesus in John chapter 3 essentially preaches the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. He, He... lays it out in a way that it just doesn't happen in the other Gospels. Now, the Gospel writers tell the story of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can extrapolate all of the details there, but Jesus here just plainly says, this is what I'm here for, this is what I'm going to do, and this is the way in which God is going to reclaim humanity. And it's wonderful, because most of the other Gospels, they spend a lot of time Jesus proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is good news but it's, it's a slightly different story that the two interweave. They're necessary for one another. But Jesus reveals to Nicodemus the whole plan. This is what's going to happen. And as far as we can tell, Nicodemus is still kind of an outsider. He's not one of the disciples that we've read about. He's not been called off of a fishing boat. He wasn't there for the wedding at Cana as far as we can tell. He's just A teacher who's come to ask Jesus, what is this all about? And his specific words to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus says this to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And in the middle here, he's answering, he's answering a question that Nicodemus pipes up with, right? Because Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in the middle, Nicodemus asks a direct question. What do you mean? Does a man need to re-enter into his mother's womb to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? Is that what you're telling me? And Jesus gives the direct answer. I I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, I'm not talking about a physical birth. I'm talking about a new birth. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And it's a very interesting interaction, because then the, the the response seems very obvious. Nicodemus says, how... How can these things be, right? Now Jesus continues. He, he actually expands on what he's saying, and he begins to preach the gospel. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus begins to proclaim that there's going to be something difficult to understand, difficult to comprehend, something outside of the normal thinking of even this highly elevated teacher in Israel. It almost feels as though he's speaking in riddles, right? Of course, we as as Christians, we can look back and say, we know what he's talking about. We understand what it is that he's saying. We can interpret it because we have all the context. But Nicodemus, this highly educated man, he turns to Jesus and he says, How can these things be? And there are oftentimes in Scripture that I think this is the core question that we find the people of God asking How can these things be? We're slaves in Egypt. How is, how is God going to deliver us from the mightiest power on earth? Words of Sarah, right? You think about this. How, how am I going to have a child in my old age? Think about Moses. How are you going to use me to deliver your people? I'm a stutterer. I, I can't speak. What signs am I going to show the people to give them the proof that I have any authority to do any of this? How can this be? David's whole family is like, how in the world is this little twerp going to be the king someday, right? Like, he's the afterthought in his own story in a lot of ways. Uh, the prophet comes to, to bless and, and elevate the, the future king, and the dad's like, yeah, I got a lot of sons you can pick from. Wait, it's none of these guys? It's David? How can this be? See, oftentimes we find ourselves asking why would God do it this way? That's not how I would have done it. That makes no sense to me. And Jesus answers Nicodemus with what is one of the strangest stories in all of Scripture. This is, this is how he responds. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. And so he tells him, again, You know, maybe this reference back to the, the Jacob's Ladder imagery that he uses. You'll see uh, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man has ascended and descended, right? He says, there are ways in which heaven works that you can't comprehend, And you've seen the signs I've given, but you can't really comprehend those either. If I explain this to you, how are you going to understand what it is that God is about to do? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And I almost imagine there's a pause between these two statements. How how are you going to understand this? How do I explain it to you? What God is going to do? I know because I've been there. I've seen it. This heavenly thing that God has in store. I comprehend it, but how do I explain it to you? if you don't even understand what I'm already doing, turning water to wine, healing people, teaching with authority, how are you going to understand the marvel of new birth, of salvation, of recreation? And so he speaks Nicodemus' language because if you're a Bible nerd... You like talking about really obscure things that happen in the Bible. And anyone who went out to men's retreat this week, weekend will uh, tell you that Chris is a Bible nerd, and sometimes he gets into these little obscure things and nerds out about them. Uh, I think I had like six conversations that lasted two hours with people that like, came up and had a really simple question, and I'm like, oh my goodness, let's go ahead and talk about that. And I spiraled out of control, and someone had to come along and say, hey, uh, I'm going to save you from Chris and his Bible nerdery. But Jesus knows, Nicodemus knows, the obscure in Scripture. Now, to be fair, this is not super obscure to people in the first century because they know their Pentateuch really well, right? They've read the first five books of the Bible. They know the stories that are in there, but this is kind of nestled away somewhere a little bit deep. And if you've ever read the first five books of the Bible, I know where you stopped. You got to the book of Numbers and you were like, I think I'm good. I'm just going to, you know, this whole read the entire Bible thing. I got through a good number of the Old Testament books, and now I'm going to jump up to the Gospels where I feel really comfortable, and there's not long lists of names, and there's not weird little anecdotes about the Israelite people wandering through the wilderness. And so a lot of us get to numbers, and we're never going to hit chapter 21. Tell you what, though, if you get past like the first couple of chapters of Numbers, there's some interesting stuff in there. Now you're saying no, only if you're a Bible nerd. Numbers 21, verses 6 and then 8 through 9. There's this story. The Israelite people are, as you can assume, guess, probably extrapolate from your previous experience with the Israelite people, grumbling against God and against Moses. They are upset because they don't have the quality of food that they had in Egypt. And there, there are times where they grumble because they don't have garlic and leeks and things like that. Uh, they, don't talk, they, they grumble about not having big pots of meat, and uh, they grumble about, you know, oh, you just brought us out here to die. It would have been better if we would died in, in Egypt. At least we'd have graves there out here. Where are you going to bury us? And in this case, as in many other cases, they're grumbling about the quality of the food. I don't think any Israelites would have ever survived a long plane trip because the quality of the food on a long plane trip is probably a lot worse than manna. I've got a couple of laughs on that. Okay. It says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents. So they're grumbling and complaining about the quality of the food. And God's like, you want to you whine about the food? You want to complain and grumble against the man that helped deliver you from Egypt. You want to grumble against the God who leads you through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, the one who's brought you water, who's fed you from heaven, who has given you an entire identity. All right. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of people of Israel died. And the Israelite people are like, oh, now we're dying of the serpents, not just hunger. This is awful. It's horrible. Why is God doing this to us? And I imagine God is like, you can connect the dots, right? You understand how this has come to pass. God says to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it, the bronze serpent, and live. Now we read this and it is so strange because this is, you know, the Israelite people have already been told, don't make graven images, don't worship graven images, you know, I am the Lord your God, I am your salvation, I am the one who will do the things for you. And God then tells Moses, you know, make an image of a serpent. And of course the Israelite people are like, the serpent's the bad guy. We're going to put the serpent on a pole, we're going to lift it up. And all these people are dying of a snake bite. And it's this really strange, why are we going to look to a serpent to deliver us from the bite of a serpent? But it works. And it's going to be thousands of years before the Israelite people really know how it worked and why God chose this sign. Thousands of years? I need to do the math. Over a thousand years. And Jesus lays that story in Nicodemus' lap. And then he says, you know the story. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have Eternal life. Four, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already Why did Moses lift up a serpent in the wilderness to heal people from snake bites? The serpent didn't do the healing, right? Like the serpent was not the thing. God did the healing. God did the work. The serpent was just an opportunity for God to say, hey, okay, here's the remedy to the the problem. And we all know Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to die. And we have the very vivid imagery of him being lifted up on the cross he dies, and it is by his death and his resurrection that we find our salvation. There's a song by a a fellow, his name, I'm going to get his last name wrong, but it's Matt Marr, or Mayhair, he's a Canadian songwriter, and uh, in the song there's a statement that he makes that I always misheard. He says, trampling over death by death. And I always misheard it. I, I, I didn't really get what he was saying. There were some lines around it that I found a little confusing. And as I was thinking about this, I came to the realization this was kind of a reference to what Jesus is saying here. How is it that the serpent managed to be the solution to the snake bite? We don't know. Except that God decided that that was the way it was going to be. How is it that the death of the Son of God is the source of our salvation? I can't comprehend it. I wrestle with it. I struggle. How does the death of God's Son bring about my salvation? I can, I can give you a thousand explanations, and I'm still going to wrestle to understand the interest, intricacies of this. But Jesus says, you're going to see something that's difficult to comprehend. But I want you to know it's all because... For this reason, the Son of Man was sent into the world because God loved it. And no one will have to perish. And he says those who didn't believe, they're already condemned. Sometimes we think that, well, if I don't believe in Jesus, that's what condemns me. That my lack of belief is the thing that has condemned me. And Jesus says, nope, your lack of belief, that's not what has condemned you. You are already condemned. You've already been bit by the serpent. You're already dying. What you need is to look upon the the thing that's killing you. Death itself. And see how God works in strange and mysterious ways to use death itself to overcome death. You will look upon the Son of Man who has been lifted up, and it's there that you'll find your salvation. Nicodemus has a couple of years now before he's going to see all of this come to pass. He's going to see it happen. I struggle sometimes to understand what it is God is doing, how he's working, how he's going to accomplish his goals. Oftentimes, the logic of Scripture defies what I've been taught historically. It defies the way that the world thinks. I, I was telling a group of men this weekend that, uh, you know, when I want to be a good father the way that the world thinks of a good father, sometimes I struggle to be the best minister to my children. I, I become too heavy-handed. I become too Impatient too unkind. And of course, I've had it ingrained in me. This is how, what it looks like to be a good father. And I have to defy all my understanding that the world has ingrained in me in order to be the kind of good father that God wants me to be. There are times where I think about my relationship with my neighbors, and the world has told me what it means to be a good neighbor is that my neighbor doesn't tick me off, and then I'm nice to them. That's how our world works. And yet, Jesus tells me, love your neighbor. Pray for those who persecute you. Blessed are you when men revile you and hate you and say all kinds of evil against you. Jesus is constantly telling me things that I'm like, well, Jesus, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I get it the longer that I spend time with Jesus, but there's still always a part of me that's like, how does that work? Jesus, I don't understand. And he says, remember how you were saved. Have you always understood that process? Do you really understand it now? Or do you just have faith in God? Do you just believe that what I've told you to do Will be sufficient because there could have been a lot of Israelite people in the wilderness who are like, No, we remember the commandments, we remember that we were told not to look on any of these, you know, images and and worship them. And of course, Moses never says, Worship these commandments, God never tells them to, to worship this snake, God never tells them to worship the snake, He just says, Look upon it, and we find ourselves. You know, looking at the commands that God gives us, and sometimes we get them all mixed up, and we're thinking he's telling us to do one thing when he's actually telling us to do the other. And I think even if we don't completely understand what it is that God is asking us to do, if we don't completely understand how it is that he's going to go about achieving the thing he says he's going to achieve, that's okay. Because our faith is not in our understanding. It's not in our ability to know what's happening in the background. Because the Spirit's going to move in ways that we can't comprehend or understand. We just know that the Spirit's moving. I am not saved by my knowledge. And Nicodemus' lack of understanding was not a barrier to him pursuing Jesus. All that Jesus wanted for him to look upon the Son of Man who was lifted up. And we're not going to get resolution to Nicodemus's story for a number of chapters now. But it's so key for us to understand that what Jesus does here is he speaks to Nicodemus in a way that makes sense to Nicodemus, that invites him into a contemplation of a deep truth that maybe he's not ready for yet, but he will be one day. We are called to approach people, to share with them the good news of the gospel, to recognize what the best approach to them is, to know what's in them, so that we know how to talk to them. And even if they don't comprehend what it is we're saying now, we can trust that God is going to give them the insight that they need in the future, if we are faithful in delivering the message. Because Jesus comes to Nicodemus long before Nicodemus is fully ready to understand the cross, the resurrection, the internal enthronement of the Son of Man. Eternal enthronement. Did I say internal enthronement? That's true too. He sits on the throne that is within you, right? Rules your heart. Nicodemus will come to understand And Jesus has laid the foundation for that. And we don't know how the Spirit will move in our neighbor. We don't know how the Spirit will move in our children. We don't know how the Spirit will move in our spouse to help them come to an understanding of that which we've laid the foundation for. We trust that the Spirit will do what the Spirit will do. This is my encouragement to us this morning, and then I'm going to pray for us and we're going to move forward in our service. God is calling each of us to minister to the world around us. He does not expect us to know how people will come to faith. He doesn't expect for us to have all the answers. He doesn't expect for us to be right all the time. If that were the case, we wouldn't need a Savior. But what he does expect is that when we are faithful to share the gospel he'll provide the context for understanding and it's up to the individual who encounters the light to either say I love the light the truth that I have encountered in Jesus Christ or to say you know I want to drag my deeds back into the darkness because this is just not for me And why that happens for some people and not for others we can't fully understand But we can continue to be faithful in the sharing of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word is so full of things that we wrestle with, that we, we try to understand, and we come up against them, and we, we just we scratch our heads. And it may be years, decades. Entire lifetimes before we really truly comprehend what it is that you've tried to tell us. But we believe that if it's important, you will give us the wisdom that we need. We believe that there are people that we have had interactions with, that we have shared the good news of the gospel with, that we may never see come to Christ in our lifetime. But who may just have the opportunity, apart from us, to witness the Son of Man lifted up. And so we will faithfully share the gospel wherever we go, not knowing how the Spirit will move, not knowing at which point those we've shared with will choose to walk into the light or recede into the darkness, but satisfied that we have done what you have asked us to do. Give us courage, give us strength, and give us wisdom. And where we lack those things, give us deep faith and love for your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if there are ways we can pray for you, walk alongside you, or bless you, we would invite you... I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. I'd be happy to sit and visit with you, pray with you. If you want to be baptized today, we are prepared to baptize you. Uh, If you are uh, just in need of counsel, we have elders here who would be happy to sit with you. We have ladies here who would be happy to pray with you. If there are ways in which we can bless you, uh, as we're singing, feel free to join me at the back of the auditorium, and we'll make sure that your needs are cared for and that you are loved well today. Let's, Let's worship our God.